Well, hey, Ken, it's great to see you. We're here. We are doing our second video. We had quite a bit of uh, feedback from the first one. Yeah, we did. We had a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, the first video was just to kind of lay a foundation and more of an introductory to uh, some basic rules or ideas of interpretation. Um, one of the things that I had laid out in that is that we should focus on showing our work and not necessarily looking at each other's conclusions. Conclusions are most definitely important. I'm not saying they're not. But it seems that as we look at biblical illiteracy, people want to shout their conclusions, and people tend to follow whoever has the most passionate method of delivery of their conclusions, and whoever can shout it the loudest usually wins the day. But what my video was talking about, or what our video was talking about, was, was following a particular set of rules um, to be able to figure out the interpretation of a passage. So uh, if you disagree with the conclusion that I have, as I know we're going to talk about in this video, um, we should actually be looking at the method of interpretation of how we got there. So I'm excited to be able to answer at least one of our questions. Yeah, th this one brother, um, he asked a few questions in his comment. I wanted to pick out one of them because maybe we'll do a couple of the other ones in another video because they all deserve, you know, some deep dive on them. So, but he was asking about the fact that you had insinuated that since Christ's death on the cross, things have started to get better and it will get better, keep getting better. Well, you know, it's real easy for all of us to look around and with all the information and the technology we have and instant instant information, it doesn't seem like things are getting better. So how would you address that sure. comment? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I, I appreciate the comment and I know that it's coming from a, a really good place. And so I welcome people to push back on anything that I'm saying. Um, I would like to point out that there's a difference between what I call anecdotal evidence, which means evidence that you see with your eyes as a personal experience. And that doesn't take the place of a Bible study. And so I am limited to the text of Scripture. I'm not insinuating that our brother doesn't use the Bible. That's, I don't mean that at all. But what I mean is usually when people give me uh, this, this conversation, it usually is filled with personal, um, hey, I used to not have to lock my house when I was a kid. I have to lock my house now. Hey, we used to know that men couldn't have babies, and now it's a discussion. Um, obviously things are trending towards the worse and you compound that from, from the pulpit, they hear their pastor, their whole life saying things like, uh, uh, in the end, things will wax worse and worse. And indeed the Bible says these kind of phrases, um, that, that, that we will not endure sound doctrine. And indeed these verses are in the Bible. So why am I saying that? Well, very simply stated that I could also give personal observations as to why I think the world's getting better. I'm not ignorant to the fact that there are some really bad things on the earth. I'm not saying they're not. Uh, you could pick a category and say which categories are getting worse and maybe which categories are getting better. I could go, you know, toe to toe with somebody and say, okay, I've got a bucket full of illustrations why the world is getting better. You've got a bucket full of illustrations they're getting worse. So let's just say we swap them back and forth. Is truth determined that way? Is truth determined by who has the most uh, examples? Um, I could give those. Uh, I could say that there are more people today that know the gospel than ever before. I could say that 
that the gospel started with 120 people in the upper room and was uh, a very, very small uh, percentage. I think there's like five or six zeros before you get to a number point five or six zeros and before you get to a number of the world's population that were Christians. Whereas today it's about at least one fourth of the world's populations claim Christ as, as, as savior. It, it actually probably is one third, but I'm just knocking that down to say maybe some of those aren't authentic. We're, we've Christ has only been king for 2000 years and some might even want to push back on that statement, which I'm, I'm fine to, to show my work on that. But if Christ has only been king for 2,000 years, and I'm saying from his resurrection and enthronement in heaven, from his ascension in Acts 1, well, before that, Satan had dominion for 4,000 years. So I, I say that at the cross, there's a turning point. There's, a, there's a, the death of the old creation, and now if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, you're a new creature. Notice the Bible says that Jesus is going to make all things new. It does not say that he's going to make all new things. There is a process for that little stone in Daniel 2 that was carved out of the mountain without hands, a reference to the virgin birth. There's a process, it says, that that little stone comes over in Daniel's vision, and it smites the, the great giant statue of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream on the feet, which is the Roman Empire, the day that the days that Jesus was born. And that, that, that whole statue comes tumbling down. And then Daniel says... And that small stone becomes, there's our process word, becomes a great mountain. And so we're in this infancy stages, more than likely, of this movement that Jesus says cannot be stopped. And so I am, I am saying things are getting better, not by anecdotal evidence, not by saying, hey, I feel safer now than when I was a kid on my particular street I grew up on. Uh, and I'm more than happy to take a whole video and talk about those kind of evidences medical advancements, lengthening of life. Less people die in wars today than almost at any point in human history. Uh, people are living longer today than since the cross. Um, Nero, the emperor that was in charge when Jesus was, was, uh, was getting towards the, uh, let me say it this way, emperor was the person in charge as we were going through the Roman Jewish war. And Nero's nickname was the beast. Put that together with some things in Revelation. Nero's nickname was the Beast. He used to skin, and I'm not going to go detailed because we don't need to go too detailed. It's, it's pretty but disgusting. He would skin little babies and wear their skin as coats and so the mothers could cry. Um, there's a lot of things that we could say that morality was in the dumpster in the first century. And um, now if you were to even push a child at a grocery store, you have the police called on you. Um there are things I could go back and forth with anecdotal evidence all day long, um, but this is a Bible study. I'm bound to the text of Scripture, so I want to talk about why I'm saying that, and I want to back that up with a Bible study. So during this Bible study, I'm not asking for anybody to agree with my conclusion. I'm asking for them to examine the work and how I'm showing and how I got to my conclusion. So if you disagree with my conclusion, the burden of proof is on you to show that if I have I made a misstep in my calculations or if I've made a misstep in my presentation of my uh, rules um, and how I'm, I'm looking at this material. I'm not asking for anybody to accept my conclusion, but I do ask them to examine my work. In other words, show your work what I mean by that. So I, I told this uh, gentleman, uh, this is, gentleman's name is George, I believe. Our brother's name is George, right? Right. Okay. So I, I mentioned to George that I'm, I'm making this statement because I believe that the, um, the gospel as it begins to spread 
will make an effect in the world. And I'm basing that off of Psalm 110. Now, I could go a lot of places. I could go Daniel 2, Daniel 7, um, I mean, Isaiah 53. I could talk about the the fact that when Messiah comes, he'll put the government on his shoulders and he will make a difference, that the world will never be the same. The hark the herald angels seeing glory to the newborn king. Uh, all of our Christmas songs are are in line also with what I'm saying. The beginning of Luke is in line with what I'm saying, that 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 the heavens declared peace on earth, goodwill toward men when Jesus was born at his birth. And so there are a people group that would like to make a hard line between his birth and his second coming in the middle of ver- in the middle of sentences, in the middle of phrases, say, okay, it was good that he was born, but we're not going to experience any kind of him being a king or peace until his second coming. The problem is you can't defend that from scripture. The Bible has his birth at the same time as him being a ruling king. I'll show you a little bit of that in this video. So I, I answered him. I said, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one place that I could go. It's a good anchor point for all of our viewers to go and examine and see if I'm doing my work correctly. So why is Psalm 110 so special? Well, let me, I just got a couple things here. Uh, this Psalm is about the Messiah. It is important for everybody to understand. This Psalm has often been called God's favorite uh, Bible passage. Uh, and the reason for that, it's obviously that we don't know what his favorite, it's all his word. It's just kind of a, a clever way of saying this because it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's the one that God's got the most mileage out of. He's quoted it the most times in the New Testament of any passage in the Old Testament. So it'd be important for us to look at it. And it gives us a timeline for the second coming of Christ. So uh, why is Psalm 110 so special? Well, it's also important to know, I'm not even going to touch on this in this video. But Hebrews 7 is a commentary. The whole chapter is a commentary on just verse 4 of this. I've got a whole series on Hebrews on my YouTube channel. Chapter 7 is up there if you want to check that out. We're not going to take the time in this video. Let me read Psalm 110 so we can at least see what it is. So here's Psalm 110, the most quoted New Testament, uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord, notice that's all capital letters, said to my Lord, notice there's they're not all capital letters. And there's a distinction in the Hebrew right there. That's talking about the Father. And that's talking about the Messiah. So those are two separate Hebrew words. So it's a Psalm of David. So basically what this is saying is the Lord said to my Lord, is the Father said it to the one coming from David's flesh. So the one born to David, the Messiah coming, Jesus. This is what the Father said to him. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemy enemies your footstool. Now, here's the question. When did Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father? Well, after he ascended, after he ascended Mm -hmm. his coronation. So when you look at Hebrews chapter one, verse three, there's so many places we could go that talk about at the, at the ascension of Christ, he sits at the right hand of the father and he's done making his atoning sacrifices. So we already know what timeline this is talking about. It's at the ascension. Here's what he says. He says, I want you to sit at my right hand. It is a very, very important word here. He says the word till until what? Until something. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we're going to get to that word footstool in just a second on what that means. So verse number two. So there's a people group out there that teach that are involved in premillennialism that will say something like, well, uh, there's going to be a thousand year physical rule and reign of Christ after a seven year tribulation period. 
And at that point, that Jesus will rule and reign in Jerusalem physically on David's throne after seven years. Well, here it says in verse two, part of this prophecy is the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, out of Zion. That'll be important for our study later. And look what he'll rule. He'll rule in the midst of your enemies, in the midst of their enemies, not in the absence of. So as Jesus is ruling, it's in the middle of all the enemies. It's not in the absence of them. So here it goes on to say, your people shall be volunteers. This is describing me and you, Jimmy, and other people watching this that love Jesus, that voluntarily serve him as king. This is different than the world's kind of kingdom. We're not under oppression from our king. We love him. We want to dedicate our lives to him. It's full of volunteers. In the day of your power and the beauties of your holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn you will not relent. Here's the order of the priesthood, not the Aaronic priesthood, uh, but according to the order of Melchizedek. There's Hebrews 7, if you want to check out. Hebrews 7 is a commentary on this one verse. What does it mean for Jesus to be after the order of Melchizedek, bypassing the Aaronic priesthood? Jesus wasn't born of the tribe of Levi, but of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. And uh, of the tribe of Judas is out of You, the scepter, shall not depart until Shiloh comes. Look at that in Matthew chapter 3 when you see uh, Herod die and his son Archelaus takes over. And then he is booted out by the Roman Empire. And there's no Jewish, any kind of Jewish scepter involved in Israel. Why? Because Shiloh came. That prophecy, really cool. Verse number 5 says this. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. That's connected to his resurrection, his ascension. There was a judgment on Israel in that first century. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Why? Because the nations are no longer going to be run by people who are ungodly. Jesus is king. Jesus is the king of the universe right now. He's in charge. There's no other power but his power. He's in charge of everything. It even talks about, he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. It's talking about the brook of Kidron, the Kidron Valley right there when he goes. It even mentions this in, I think I mentioned this. No, it's if you want to look at it, I think it's in John 19, but you can look at it later. When he goes to the brook of Kidron right there, when he's uh, going to drink from the cup that the Lord gave him, notice here it's his humiliation, drinking the cup, and lifting up his head. So both in exaltation, humiliation, both in verse 7. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. What do we mean by footstool? Remember here in verse number 1, sit at my right hand until something, until I make your enemies your footstool. What does that word footstool mean? Well, basically, make it really simple because we're going to cover a lot tonight. The word footstool is talking about the presence of God in the tabernacle. And so here's an example of that. You can look at other passages, but basically here's one example. They're all over. I could, I could do 15, 20 of them. Then King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. Uh, and he and had made preparations to build it. And so we're talking about footstool here. That's talking about this special place by the ark of the covenant where the where literally the Lord would rest his feet, where his presence would be. Now, in the New Testament, what's the temple? It's us. When Jesus resurrected, he resurrected the temple and his body. And if we're in him, we share in his identity in that. 
Paul refers to our bodies as the temple of the living God. If that's the case, then he resides in us and we have access to the presence of God. That's why we be, that's how we became priests through our high priests, Jesus Christ. So the footstool reference is a reference to people getting saved and having the presence of God in their life. All right, let's move on. Here's a couple of places Psalm 110 is used. By the way, let me just pause for a moment and just say in case anybody misses this. The reason Psalm 110 is powerful is because, in, in fact, before I go on, let me just clarify real quickly because I think it's important. If I'm saying, well, I'm just quoting here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, please let me uh, make this point real quick. Sit at my right hand, Acts chapter one. He's at the right hand of the Father. Some people would say he's going to stay there until things get really bad. He's going to stay there until things are so bad that he calls his church home and he raptures them out of the world. And then his fire and wrath are poured out on this world for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. But this says something different. It yeah, I mean, either. It, the way that the way that you just said that some people say it, it would it would sound to me like until he has be, been made the enemy's footstool. Right. <laughs> You know, it's, yep. it's kind of backwards. Yes. Yeah, see, we, I, you remember the old hymn we all sang in church, Victory in Jesus? Yeah. We Every do have other vi- week. We do have victory in Jesus. The cross mattered. The birth, death, and resurrection of Christ, ascension of Christ mattered. There's sufficiency in the cross of Christ. He's not going to fail. He said that he's overcome the world. And so he's going to sit at the right hand until the gospel does what the gospel is going to do, change the world. He wins. He doesn't lose. The the church is a giant success, not a failure. And so in just 2,000 years, we've gone from, I would say, 12 people, but I don't know if you want to count Judas, but let's throw him in there. 12 people with 250 million people on the planet to right now about one-third to one-fourth of the people somewhere in there proclaim Christ as Savior. And we're seeing massive revivals all around the world right now in the Philippines, in China, in Palestine. There's a huge underground church revival. I just saw on the news yesterday that Argentina, um, they elected a very conservative, non-political kind of Trump kind of guy in Argentina. They're sick of the corruption. And there is a, a video today of him going down a row of things. I don't know if you saw this or not, but he started plucking things off the board. He said, see this? And he said, critical race theory in our schools. And he threw it over his shoulder. He goes, no more. You see this? Environmental, whatever. No more. You see this? He wanted a landslide in Argentina. He's going to turn that thing around overnight. Yeah, this is he's... all over the world. Sometimes we go like this and we see what, what the news wants us to see. There's a lot of good news, but you just don't see it reported because bad news doesn't make money, right? Right, right. So, so this is the timeline I'm going by. Now, it's not on me to have to prove things are getting better. I'm just simply saying that Christ is ascending in Acts chapter 1, and he's going to sit there until a progression of Christianity, global Christianity, takes over the world. This is the opposite of what pop theology will teach us today. They're teaching us that things are getting worse, and they are quoting Bible to do it, but my contention is they're taking it out of context. All of those passages of waxing worse and worse are speaking of a time period that's an age The end of what age? The end of the age. End of what age? The Judaic age. The old covenant was coming to a violent end. So the Judaic age and the Christ age overlapped by 40 years. Christ ascended in Acts uh, Acts chapter 1 at AD 30. 
And the temple was destroyed in AD 70, bringing an end to the Judaic age. The age of the sacrificial system, the old covenant, came to a crashing end. And that violent end is what all of these passages were talking about. If you look in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, uh, the King James, as much as I love it, made this a little confusing. They, they translated eon, the Greek word eon, they translated it as world. End of the end. What, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the eon? It says world. That's not, cosmos means world, for God so loved the cosmos. Eon means time period or age. Look at any other translation, and it says the, the end of the age. I love the King James. I'm not dogging it. But that one word has been a very confusing thing for this topic. But let's get into some other stuff. That's how footstool is used. Let's get into some uses of Psalm 110. Jesus used Psalm 110, Matthew 22, 41 through 46. He's having a discussion with the Pharisees. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about, about the Christ? He's speaking of himself. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, where did they get that from? Well, they got it from 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, as we call it, and Psalm 110. He said, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, now look what Jesus is quoting here for his benefit. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. How, do, how, Jesus says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day uh, on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, we know the answer to that because it says in the book of Revelation that Jesus is both the root, that's the originator, and the offspring of David. He both created David and he was going to be born through the Davidic line, both. So we understand the answer. They didn't understand the answer. But the point is that Jesus, in this moment of discussion to try and say who what his identity was, he used Psalm 110. Over here in the book of Acts, Peter uh, is preaching at the day of Pentecost gigantic moment in the church's history, right? Jeremiah 31, all these prophecies from Joel chapter 2 and 3, they're all saying that in, the, in these days I will pour out my spirit upon, among all men. That's happening. And so Peter takes this moment in the important day of Pentecost and says, men and brethren, let me freely speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. The reason he said both dead and buried, by the way, as a slight rabbit trail, the reason he said that is because if you look back at the Davidic covenant between the Lord and David in 2 Samuel 7, specifically says, David, when you are dead and sleeping with your fathers, you have to be dead for this to be true. Okay, very important. Because the reason that's important is because there is a timeline given by the dispensationalists today that there is a resurrection of the dead and then Jesus reigns as king. David can't be alive during this. He has to be dead for this. So Peter points over at, at, at David's tomb and he says, man, he's both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. You can go look at it. He's dead. He even says later, he's not yet ascended to the father. He's making sure, you know, he's dead. Verse 30, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, 2 Samuel 7, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah, the Christ, to sit on his throne. Well, what are we talking about here? Some future thousand years? He says here in verse 31, he, foreseeing this, foreseeing, let me go slow, foreseeing what? Foreseeing the fact that Christ would sit on David's throne. When he saw that, he says in verse 31, 
foreseeing this, what was he talking about? Spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus sitting on the throne of David. It's a position, not a chair. Okay. Verse number 32. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, that already happened in the previous chapter. So fresh, fresh news. Jesus ascended. Acts 1. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out uh, this which you now see and hear. That was happening at this moment. Remember the, the flames above their head. Verse 34. For David not, uh, did not ascend into the heavens, but he said himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And of course, Peter's response is, Repent. And they gladly did. And the Jews accepted Christ as their Messiah. The early church was exclusively Jews. This idea of them rejecting him as, as Savior. The whole early church was Jews. were Jews. All the way until chapter 8. It wasn't until chapter 9 that they got scared by what happened until for, to Stephen. And they all dispersed in chapter 8, verse 1. Let's go to another thing. You want to see a super easy time? You want to know where I'm getting my timeline at? 1 Corinthians 15. I go here probably first for most people because it's so simple. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. If Christ didn't rise again, we're all in trouble. But now has Christ resurrect, uh, risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for death with the anticipation of waking up. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. I just read that twice. But each one in his own order. Okay, what's the order of this thing? We have the resurrection of Christ. We know that. He's the first fruits. What's, what's the order of, of all these things we're talking about? Well, he's going to lay it out as plainly as I can possibly imagine. He says Christ is the first fruits. In other words, Christ was the first one to resurrect under the new creation. He's the first fruit. Fruit is the theming of the entire Bible. Adam, don't eat that fruit. Eat this fruit. Okay, you shouldn't have had that fruit. Israel, I'm going to pull you aside. I'm going to make you a vineyard. I'm going to hedge everything about this vineyard. I want good grapes. Oh, you gave me sour, wild grapes. I wanted good fruit. Why aren't you giving me good fruit? I made this beautiful vineyard. I put a hedge of protection around you. Where's my good fruit? He was talking about obedience. He comes in Matthew 21. He gives a parable on the same thing. He says, what should I do to these people who... Uh, they get paid money to produce fruit. And guess what? They didn't produce any. I sent them uh, uh, stewards of mine to come. It is the prophets. Matthew 21 is what I'm summarizing. He said, I sent them these, these uh, high officials of, of this, this rich man in this foreign land. They murdered them. Then, then he sent his, his own son. He said, surely they'll, they'll obey my son or they'll respect my son. And guess what? They murdered him too. Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees. They were hired hands to produce fruit in his vineyard. So Jesus asked them, what do you think should happen to these people? The Pharisees signed their own fate as Nathan called out David. And David, seeing the story with fresh eyes, said he should be put to death. And Nathan said, you are the, you are the man. The Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, those miserable people should be utterly destroyed. 
And Jesus looked at them and said, and they will be. And then they perceived he was speaking of them. Matthew 21, yeah, right? They, they knew it. They knew it. They knew it. So here we're talking about this timeline. Whoa, 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 whoa. So, so what you're saying is Jesus wasn't talking about some people 2,000 years later? He wasn't. <laughs> he was talking straight to them. He was talking, and they, and they knew it. And they knew it. They knew it. Remember, immediate audience was one of our 10 rules. Mm-hmm. What immediate, somebody was asking this in the comments, too. And we can get to all the questions. I'm more than happy to take each one. Somebody said, well, how do we know what they knew? This is an example of what the immediate audience knew. It says, and they knew. They were, they were speaking of him. So I would be in error teaching Matthew 21 as 2,000 years away because the media audience knew they were speaking of him. But look what it says. It says, here's the order of this thing. Christ, the first fruits at his resurrection, first century. Afterward, after his resurrection, those who are Christ, when? At his coming. At his second coming, there will be a general resurrection of the dead. And look at verse 24. Then comes the end. See how simple that is? That's it. When he delivers the kingdom to the God, the Father. See, a lot of people today, pop theology would have you say that then there's a seven-year tribulation period. And then Jesus will start his kingdom for a thousand years. This says when he resurrects the dead at his coming, that's the end. And guess what? Then he's going to deliver the kingdom to God, the Father. He delivers it. doesn't start it. It's, it's at that point, it's, it's coming to maturity. It's coming to maturity. And it's a kingdom without end, but it's coming to maturity. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, at that point, nobody will have anything to say against him at all. Verse 25, for he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet. Oh, there's our Psalm 110 popped up again. Every time we talk about the position of Christ, the timeline of Christ, when is he going to return? Well, Jesus is using this. Paul's using this. Peter's using, I'm not cherry picking here. The most quoted verse says he's going to sit at the right hand of the father until something happens, until he puts all enemies under his feet, all enemies under his feet. And notice what Paul says in verse 26. By the way, if any Bible teacher has any death after the general resurrection, they have to contend with this verse, which says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. There cannot be any death after the resurrection because the Bible here says that's it. He has then taken all authority from the world. See, a lot of teaching now has that at a beginning point where there's tons of death. They would teach that two thirds of the Jews still need to be slaughtered in Israel. This one says, nope, at his return at the resurrection of the dead, he'll deliver the kingdom to the father and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. There is no more death after that enemy is destroyed. And now we get commentary on what this means. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says, now Paul's going to explain it, all things are put under him. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, Paul's saying there is one exception to this. The exception is that Jesus, the son, is not going to put the father under his feet. So that's the one exception. Verse 28 makes it clear. Now, when all things are made subject to him, meaning to Jesus, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, when God emptied himself and became a man, he gave us such a gift. And Jesus at that point, 
that we call the Son of God was God emptied himself and became a man. Jesus is God. That at this point, we still have the hierarchy of structure. That Jesus as a human, our brother, our friend, also is uh, seeing himself. It says here that the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. In other words, he will be able to identify with our humanity at that point because he indeed is a human. Let, let, uh, me, let me ask you about sure. verse 27 real quick. Sure. Why does it say he has put all things under his feet? As has that Does that mean it is, has already happened? In authority, yes. In practice, no. So in authority, there is no one higher than Jesus. Uh, we'll get into the, uh, Matthew 28 in just a moment. Uh, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's there's no question about that. So by by way of that statement, that means he has put everything under his feet. In that statement, he has put all things under his feet. All that's playing out right now is that little stone in Daniel chapter 2, that stone, is growing to become a great mountain. And then he's saying in verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. If you go back to Psalm 110, the wording is, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Um, it says until. Now, when Paul is saying this, he's saying this after Christ comes back. So Jesus will be able to say, yeah, I put all things under my feet. In other words, oh. the world on my footstool. Okay. Yeah, because it's the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So that obviously means it's at the end. Okay. Okay. I got. I'm tracking with you now. Okay, cool. Let's move on. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Uh, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, so there's a contrast between Jesus and the high priest of the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. They would go in every year and make atonement for the same people and the same sins they're committing. But this man, different. This man, verse 12. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he went and what did he do? Well, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. There's our timeline. He went and sat down at the right hand of the Father after his ascension in Acts 1. From that time waiting, what's he waiting for in verse 13? Till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You know what Jesus is in heaven waiting for right now? Not for things to get so terrible that he's going to come and rip his church out and smack the rest of the world. And the Antichrist will deceive people. He's waiting for the world to get globally Christianized so that the new Jerusalem can take over everything. That's the message of the Bible. So here's just a few thoughts as we wrap this up. And we could make this longer, but let's just give a few thoughts. Number one, like I said, Jesus' coming to the earth mattered. It really mattered. His birth actually mattered. His death really mattered. His resurrection really mattered. And the gospel's powerful. Um, number two, morals have demonstrably improved since the first century. Demonstrably. Like, this isn't even close. I mean, we live in a day and age right now where things aren't really tolerated. Um, I, I cannot get mad and slap somebody at the store. I cannot um, push a kid down in public. I would have to hide that. Um, I can't just go in with a gun and rob a bank and just say, do you know who my parents are? I'm taking this money. That used to work. 
<laughs> Literally, if you had a gun and a handkerchief, you could kind of take whatever you wanted. I was just thinking about the Wild <laughs> West back yeah. in the day. Biggest gun wins. Uh, I have here uh, uh, expositio and or and the, and the way we would say it is exposure. I would encourage folks at home to simply Google what is Roman expositio or or what was the Roman exposure. There was a very general law, and for the sake of those listening, I don't want to be graphic and I will not get into it, but I will tell you this. It was extremely common in the first century in the Roman Jewish era under the rule of the Roman emperors. Extremely common that if you did not want your child, so your wife gives birth, it's a girl, really wanted a boy. You know what you can do? At any time you want to. Could be one day old, three months old, nine months old. It's up to you. If you have not accepted that child into your home, you may expose them to the elements. You could throw them in a trash can. You could put them on your front lawn. You could feed them to your dogs. You can do whatever you want. And it's common law. It would be common for you and I to be walking around and hearing babies. I mean, it about makes you cry. Hear a baby cry in a dumpster. Common. It was built into their law code. You tell me morals haven't gotten better since the first century. You know what the problem is, Brad? Bud, this is what it is for me. I hear people talk about this, and what they do is they have in their mind the Andy Griffith show and The Wizard of Oz, and this is how they're viewing the world, and they remember good times. Let's not forget, Judy Garland went through a, a terrible time when she was filming The Wizard of Oz. When the, the camera said cut, they didn't all stay in character. The munchkins went and started smoking. <laughs> okay, the Brady Bunch. See the documentaries on the Brady Bunch? The weird who loves who and who's sleeping with who when it's Brady Bunch? So that might have been what was piped into your, your TV in your living room. Hey, if you know but, something about Andy Griffith, just keep it to yourself. I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to. No, no. <laughs> it's just, it's just that I picked it because it's one of my favorites. That Little House, just absolutely love those two. Raised on those. But but listen, we have we have a, a, a warped view because, yes, the FCC has allowed TV to, be, to have smut come into our homes. But what we're talking about is global international morality. The things that were OK in the first century uh, are no, nowhere near OK right now in basically any country in the world. Um, and you know what else is happening? A lot of wickedness is actually being exposed right now. We're, we're, we're thinking, man, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. But how about look at it like it's being exposed? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I've said before is if you lived next door to a serial killer for 20 years, but you invited him over to your home for barbecues and he went to your kids' um, Little League games and he watched movies with you, you, you had a great neighbor. All of a sudden, one day you see news cameras and a bunch of police over arresting him for being a serial killer. Would you look to your spouse and say, man, this neighborhood is getting crazy. It's getting worse. No, the sirens might be unsettling. The news agencies might be unsettling. The controversy might be unsettling. But the acts of him murdering people have always been real. The fact that you know about it now and he's exposed isn't making it worse. Like you said, it's making it better, but it is tough because we have to deal with it now. And in our pockets, we all have these phones that tell us the worst things going on in the world every day because that's what sells. I think it's better, point number three, 
500 year chunks are a be- better measurement than your in your own lifetime. I put Matthew 25 there if you want to check it out. There's 10 versions that are talked about Matthew 25. Five of them took enough oil, which is a representation of the Holy Spirit. Five of them didn't take enough for their oil for their lamps. Those five that didn't take enough oil for their lamps, they ran out of oil. Their light began to not shine. They wanted the, the oil of the others. They said, no, you should have brought more. And Jesus is telling this story. We never hear this taught. Jesus is telling this story because the five that didn't bring enough oil, you know what their error was? They thought the, that the groom was going to return sooner. The other ones planned him to be gone for a long time. I think it's very possible we're in the infancy of the church. I mean, we can get into the book of Revelation later. I'm, I, that's my probably my favorite study to do. I'm more than happy to do that. Number four, good news doesn't make money. We've already talked about that. Um, you know how how quickly downhill a new, new news agency would go if they talked about the current revivals in the Philippines? No one cares. Well, I do, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we right. believe that would be wonderful for us here. But, no, we're hearing about corruption. We're hearing about corruption and scandals. I mean, folks, when, when, when lives being changed in the Philippines and China are ignored, but we're talking about what Joe Biden's son did when he's addicted to crack with a hooker. We're getting lied to. I mean, I don't think that's a lie, but I'm just saying we're, we're getting brainwashed or our minds are being controlled. And what does it say in Philippians 4? Whatsoever things are lovely, good reports, sound, all the, whatever things are a virtuous, think on these things. But what do we do? Foxnews.com, right? It's just like, I got to know what the latest garbage is. I'm not saying don't know who to vote for. I'm not saying, I'm not sure Fox News would help you understand that, but <laughs> yeah. Maybe What's some new ones that are less corrupt? Um, there's own network, whatever. Yeah. There's, but and, um, but who really even knows? <laughs> they're all out to make money. You got you got to use you got it. You know what you got to do, brother. This is your standard. Whatever candidate is as close to this as possible, vote for them. That's that's basically what you got to do. Number five, we could easily be in the infancy of the church. I already talked about that. You can't look at two thousand years of Christianity's growth. Satan had 4,000 years of dominion. Jesus has only had 2,000. He's only had half the time. Hey, don't judge him as a failure yet. Hey, Jesus is just getting started with this thing. Already one-third to a quarter of the people say that he's their savior. Give it some time. Our lives flip on the radar. And I say sometimes, and I've I've said it to you, Jesus is waiting for us to get busy and do the things that we're supposed to do. Amen. Well, so think the, about the more of us that get get with it and follow the, you know, uh, the subduing the earth, the mandate, you know, of of subduing the earth wasn't just for Adam and Eve to make more babies. I, and Jesus said the same thing, you know, uh, go and make disciples, teach them everything I've taught you. You know, pop theology today, dispensationalism specifically, has taught the average believer to hunker down have a stash of canned goods, max out your credit cards, and hold on, we're at the end, and let's watch some fireworks. As opposed to, Jesus has conquered all things. Look at this in Matthew 20, 18. Jesus came, this is right after his resurrection. He said, you want to know what just changed for my resurrection? Here's what just changed. He came to his disciples, spoke to them saying, all authority has been, see that word, huge word given to me that means he did not have it before the resurrection he was given it why because it was not his 
It was given to him in two places. Heaven, Satan's kicked out, no more access. Remember the story of Job and on earth. And then now when we go to our missions conferences in church, we always start with verse 19. We say the Great Commission is 20, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Verse 19 starts with the word, therefore, you know, all your good Bible teachers always tell you, know what the word therefore is therefore. In this case, we're starting our great commission out in verse 19. It starts in 18. If you want to go back to here, he's saying, here's what's different now because of my resurrection. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So when people say to me, Jesus is not the ruling king, I'm like, how much more is, than you, is he going to get later than all? He has it all now. Therefore, what do you do? Because of this, what do you do? Go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, to teach them to observe all the things that I've taught you. Here's something. Wait, that, wait just a minute, Ken. I'm gonna Yeah. I'm gonna see what that Greek word all means. <laughs> yeah. I think it'll be a pretty inclusive word. Yeah, it means all. Okay. Yeah. Well, you got you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> this is this, this breaking uh, breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> Here's something else Jesus said. And I'm not even a Greek scholar. And you did it well. No one would know that. <laughs> John sixteen thirty three. These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That see this is what the this is what people are focusing on when they say the world's getting worse. Look at the tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. That's the message of the gospel. As the gospel spreads, we're going to see more and more things that just happened in Argentina. We're going to start seeing more and more things. And instead of people being just for general freedom, uh, we're going to start seeing people who actually uh, know the word of God and are believers and will represent Jesus as king. Remember when uh, our founding fathers came over, it was very common for them to say, we have no king but Jesus. We're getting away from King George. We have no king here. When George Washington was elected our first president, they said, we have our new king. And he said, nope, I will not be called your king. George Washington rejected the term king. Why? He said, I just want to kind of preside over everything. I'll be like a presider. I'll be your president. But I'm not going to be called king. We just got away from tyranny. And so a new nation was born without a king. Why? We have no king but Jesus. And so we're going to start seeing this more as the history of the world. Remember, we're a young nation. I mean, 1776 wasn't that long ago. We're going to start seeing more replications of America as the gospel penetrates the hearts of pagans and lost people all over the world. So, yeah, I believe we can get back to being that light on the hill and and that beacon well, that we're light, supposed to be. Growing. You know, the, there wasn't a burning, blazing light in the 1700s. That light is actually bigger now than it was then. The biggest problem is, because Christianity's grown since then, the biggest problem is now your churches are filled with people teaching that the things are going to get worse. And everybody believes that because they're taking a few passages out of context. Now, I just presented a lot. A lot of what I'm presenting, I just want to say this. The question is not whether or not you agree with my conclusion. What my conclusion is this, that Christ will sit on his throne uh, until the vast majority of the world is saved. That's my conclusion. But the question is not whether or not you agree with me. The question is this, though. Did I break any of the rules of interpretation to arrive at my conclusion? So 
if you agree with me in both my work shown and my conclusion, then I say great to that. I'm glad you do agree with me. And I would rather people agree with me as long as I'm right. I don't want to be wrong in this. But here's the thing. If you disagree with my conclusion, I don't look down on you. I, I think we're all struggling for truth together. And I've changed in a lot of things that I've been shown to be wrong on. And I, I always say to my wife, I look forward to see what else I'm wrong about. But here's the thing. If you do disagree with my conclusion, then please be prepared to show in which part of showing my work, work I erred. That's the exercise of the first video. The first video we talked about was a lot like they did in Acts 1711. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. See, I'm not the authority on this topic. The Lord Jesus is the authority on this topic. And if I've misrepresented him, then I need somebody in your audience to be able to say, Ken, Psalm 110 is not talking about that. And all the quotations in the New Testament, that you took all of those out of context. And only then will I listen to somebody who says that they're, they're not agreeing with my conclusion. And I'm fine being wrong, but somebody will have to, if somebody shortcuts it and says, well, I disagree, that's so, fine. Help us. So just coming back at you and saying, this is what I've heard my whole life. That's not a good enough, uh, that's not going to fly. It might be a nice, it might be a nice uh, conversation starter. And I certainly, um, I sympathize with people that say that because there is a strong emotion when it comes to faith for us. And by the way, just so your listeners, uh, viewers understand, I was also told that my whole life. I grew up a dispensationalist in a King James only church, and I could uh, tell you about all the dispensations. I had a Larkin chart up on our stage and I was just a little kid. I'm very familiar with all the Larkin charts. I understand the mountain peaks of prophecy. Um, I grew up in that, and that's probably why I'm so passionate about this topic is showing your work is they were very good at talking about Bible. But what they did was they took a little piece from Daniel chapter 9, a little piece from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a little piece from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and drew a hard line between Revelation 3 and 4, and they presented their case. That case doesn't come from the Word of God. It comes from a very quick copy and paste version of it, and they're not showing their work. They're basically saying, okay, folks, do this for a second. Here's what I think is true. Okay, let me show you a few, a few verses where it kind of sounds like that. And the Lord shall call, you know, a trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise. See? The whole story is true because I just said a little bit of it. Well, in context, it's not what it's talking about. So if somebody said that they've heard that their whole lives, I would not expect anybody to agree with me in a one-hour YouTube video. But what I would love for people to do is disagree with substance disagree with the word of God opened and go through Psalm 110 and show me how you're going to draw a really, really hard line between uh, in, in verse number one. And if you're going to draw a really hard line, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You have to draw a line here. Now, this is one sentence, but you're going to have to draw a hard line right here as the dispensationalists have to uh, when Jesus was born and the government will be on his shoulders. They put a hard line in the middle of a sentence. Well, the government's not on his shoulders yet. Well, it, it attaches it to his birth. You're putting a line there. It's not, you can't do that. So if you want to put a line here and tell me how he is sitting at his right hand in Acts, since Acts chapter one, but he's going to leave for a different reason. And this is talking about something else. The burden of proof is on you to be able to show me how I'm misrepresenting that. Um, I think I've, I've done a, a decent job of showing in the New Testament how the understanding of that in, in, from Peter, Paul, and Jesus was the same as I'm presenting right now, that when Jesus Christ resurrects, 
he he receives an inheritance, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, of the nations of the earth and of his kingdom. There is no end. And so I sympathize if somebody says that I really do. And I don't want to ever um, look down on anybody or, or argue with anybody, but pre present my case and have them just look at the evidence. And if indeed I am leading people astray, please show me because that, that is not my desire. I, I always take all this very serious because, you know, there's some scriptures that make me quite nervous about even being bold enough to try to teach people things. Because if I am wrong and if I, or if I'm just purposefully deceiving, you know, uh, one day is not going to be very pleasant for me, you know? Right. Yeah. And in fact, um, you, you know this because we've talked about it. But I'll say to those that are watching, I've paid a very high price for what I'm saying here. Um, there are those that I, I would love to work with in ministry that think I'm a heretic from this. I don't benefit personally from saying any of this. I would be much better off just falling right in line with pop theology. But guess what? The Lord would not let me do that because I cannot see from the scriptures where um, the popular view of the day is true. I see, a, I see a view of the scriptures that when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he's king. And he bound Satan from deceiving the nations. And at that point, the gospel is growing. It might not be fast enough for some people, but it is growing. There's no denying that. And uh, even though people are saying things are getting worse, I understand there are aspects that are worse. There's, there's no question about that. But when a terrorist act or a school shooting is replayed 24-7 on loop, and, and let's just say, tragically, 20 people die. Obviously, that's not good. I in no way minimizing it. But when that's played and ingraining in your brain, ingraining in your brain, and you forget that 2,000 years ago, what it looked like, or 1,500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. So my argument is not that we're in some bliss. That's not my argument. Simple argument that Jesus is going to sit on his throne until his enemies become his footstool, until folks get saved. I, I can't see where... <laughs> The people would think this kind of thought process is is heretical, but I, you know, I I fully expect, you know, to hear some of this myself at some point. But when you start, just for me, as I have started reading the Bible with these things in place, these who's he talking to? Who was it? Who is it? Who is this message for? Has this prophecy been fulfilled? Is there such a thing as dual prophecy? You know, I'm starting to think about all these things. So, mm. so if this is true, then what does that mean for this? You know, yeah. I mean, what people who watch these videos, you're gonna wa you're watching me just on this continual journey of, you know. My eyes are just opening continually more and more, and I'm and I ask. I don't know why I'm surprised about it. I ask mm -hmm. for this. A lot of times, I I pray a, the the Luke prayer. Uh, it's not a prayer in Luke, but when Jesus said, "And He opened their understanding so that they would understand," I pray that over myself when I'm studying. I'm like, "Open yeah. my understanding. I want to understand." And from what I know about God. I'm asking that according to his will. Amen. So I know that he hears that. And I know. And something else I pray a lot that I think a lot of us should. Don't let me be deceived. 
I don't want to be deceived. I want the truth, and I want to teach people the truth. Amen. So, Amen. Let me just say a little proactively for some of the viewers, too. Maybe you have verses in mind right now that seem like it contradicts what I'm saying. Um, I know those verses are there. I'm not ignorant to them, and I'm not trying to minimize them. In fact, I would love to go through those. A lot of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus will say, you know, you'll see famines and earthquakes and perilous times shall come. I'm not ignoring any of that. Those are all in their proper context. I would look forward to having the time to be able to explain those. Um, I think all of those have their context. The book of Revelation, how it fits in, seems like things said in that are crazy. Um, and uh, I'd, have, I'd love to have the opportunity to explain those to those if they would be interested in that. So I'm not ignoring those. And like I said on the last video, burden of proof is on me. This is super easy teaching for the futures because nothing's happened. You say, Pastor, what do you think is the mark of the beast? I don't know. It could be. A, is it a vaccine? Maybe. Is it Social Security? I, could be. You know, who's the beast? Is it some? Is it? Is it Ronald Reagan? Maybe. You know, people said it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it wasn't Ronald Reagan. But it's like the futurists. They don't have to. They can just say, "We'll see, won't we?" Here's all this stuff that hasn't happened. Sounds crazy. Look, there's a war. Is that what Jesus was talking about? Maybe. There's no answer. You got to understand the the teaching that I'm giving massive burden of proof. What I'm saying is it has happened. So that means I have to actually show you from the Bible where famines happened. Thankfully, we have the book of Luke that's an evidentiary book. And, I, and it's, a, it's showing that the book of Acts, Luke wrote, I should say, uh, it bridges the gap and shows where a lot of these things develop. So I'm not ignoring that. I'd look forward to doing that. But yeah, with Matthew 24 and Revelation on Bible Academy. Ken, what would you say if this is the first time someone is hearing this? Is this, is this a new... Is this something new? Well, I'm glad that you asked that because I was amazed to find out, uh, you know, I grew up um, believing the, the popular view oh, that we normally call dispensationalism. That's majority future that would say that Jesus is not a ruling king right now, that he's king in some sense, but he'll really start showing his muscles when he comes back in his second advent. And I actually I wanted to touch on that. Is this a new view? No, it's not. In fact, almost the entire history of the church prior to the mid-1800s believed in some form of what we can call optimistic eschatology, meaning that as time progresses, the gospel will grow, and we're optimistic that actually the gospel will win, that it will do its job, the church is successful, in which the popular view today, after the mid-1800s, um, is that there's what we would call a pessimistic eschatology. John MacArthur, in one of his recent sermons in the last couple of years, famously just got right down to the point and said, do you get it? We lose down here. We are designed to lose down here. Do you get it? He said it just like that. I'll bring up that clip sometime for your viewers if they want to see it. His point is they believe it's getting worse and worse, and that finally Jesus is, you know, can't take it anymore, and then he takes the church out in the preacher raptures the popular view and uh then he you know uh has a seven-year tribulation period where halfway through an antichrist is revealed and he makes a covenant with israel and so forth but i think we all know the left behind story that's pretty much the positive uh, the the view on that but it, up until the mid-1800s it wasn't that way and i'll give you a couple examples of that <clears throat> just real quickly this looks like a lot i'm just going to straight read it i'm not going to talk through it uh this is matthew henry matthew henry was 1700s Matthew Henry on Psalm 110, so this is the passage we just took the time to study. He says concerning Psalm 110 that he was to be advanced 
to the highest honor, he's talking about his, his, at his ascension, and entrusted with an absolute sovereign power both in heaven and on earth, and in earth, sit thou at my right hand. Sitting is a resting posture. After his services and suffering, he entered into rest from all his labors. It is a ruling posture. He sits to give law, to give judgment. It is remaining. It is a remaining posture. He sits like a king forever. Sitting at the right hand of God denotes both his dignity and his dominion. The honor put upon him and trust reposed in him by the Father. All favors that come from God to man and all the services that come from man to God pass through his hand. Now he begins, gets a little bit more detailed. He says that all his enemies were in due time to be made his footstool and not till then. But then also he must reign in the glory of the mediator through the work of the mediator will be in a manner at an end. Notice will be a progressive kind of idea. Even Christ himself has enemies that fight against his kingdom and subjects. His honor and interest in the in, in that in the world, there are those that will not have him to reign over them, and thereby they rejoin themselves to Satan, who will not have him to reign at all. These enemies, notice what he says here: these enemies will be made his footstool. He will subdue them and triumph over them. He will do it easily, as easily as we put a footstool in its proper place. As such a proprietary propriety there will be in it, he will make himself easy by the doing of it. As a man that sits with a footstool under his feet, he will subdue them in such a way as shall most for his honor in their perpetual disgrace. He will tread down the wicked. Uh, he says, the father has undertaken to do it. I will make them thy footstool. Who can do it? Almost done. He says, it will not be done immediately. In other words, it's not right away. It's a progressive idea. This is the common teaching before mid-1800s. It will not be done immediately. All his enemies are now in a, in a chain, but yet uh, are not yet made his footstool. This is the apostle's observation in Hebrews 2.7. We see not yet all things put under him. Christ himself must wait for the completion of his victories and triumphs. He shall wait till it is done. And all their might and malice shall not give the least disturbance to his government. He sitting uh, at God's right hand is a pledge to him of his sitting, uh, setting at his feet his, uh, at last and all the next on his enemies. That's the common teaching Matthew Henry gave before 1850s. Not all of my examples are that long. The biggest thing that I want people to see is when the ascension happened in Acts chapter 1 and Christ sits at the right hand, we all agree on that. What we disagree on is what happens from there. Matthew Henry is saying there's a process. From there, the gospel will take over and Christ will eventually win. Here's another example. Jameson Foston Brown, he says this, he will sit as a king, though that uh, the position rather posture is intimate. And what when he's he's commenting on this phrase here, until I make the dominion of Christ over his enemies as commissioned by God and entrusted with all power for their subjugation will assuredly be established. This is the need. This is neither his government as God, nor that which as the incarnate savior he exercises over his people. The reason he's saying that is a lot of people today say, oh, this is just his dominion just over the people that are saved. He's saying, no, it's it's of everybody uh, of whom he will ever be head. And, and, and then thine uh, footstool, an expression taken from the customs of Eastern conquerors to signify a complete subjection. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. This is his commentary called The Treasury of David on Psalm 110. Charles Spurgeon says, away from the shame and suffering of his earthly liar, Jehovah calls on Adonai, our Lord to the repose and honors of his celestial seat. His work is done, he may sit, it is well done. 
He may sit at his right hand. It will have grand results. He may therefore quietly wait to see the completion of victory, the complete victory, which is certain to follow, following his ascension. The glorious Jehovah thus addresses the Christ as our Savior. For says David, he said unto my Lord, Jesus is in uh, Jesus is placed in the seat of power, dominion, and dignity, and is to sit thereby by divine appointment, while Jehovah fights for him and lays every rebel beneath his feet. That's the process. When Jesus is ascended, the gospel spreads, and he wins. He sits there by the Father's ordinance and call, and will sit therefore, uh, there despite all the raging of his adversaries. Where's he getting that from? Because there's enemies he's ruling in the midst of in verse 2. Till they are all brought uh, under, utter, to utter shame by putting his foot upon their necks. In this sitting, he is our representative. The mediatorial kingdom will last until the last enemy shall be destroyed. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15. And then, according to the inspired word, cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God the Father. It's exactly what I was teaching. So if you're going to say, well, you know, Ken's out in left field, I'm right where Charles Spurgeon was too, right where Matthew Henry was, right where Jameson Fawson was. And I've greatly cut down my examples for the length of the video here. The work of subduing the nations is now in the hand of the great God, who by his providence will accomplish it to the glory of his son. His word is pledged to it, and the session of his son at his right hand is the guarantee thereof Therefore, let us never fear as to the future. That's examples prior to the mid-1800s. Now, somebody may be asking, what happened in the mid-1800s? Maybe a different video. We can get into that. Here's a few examples of how people did this exact same passage in Psalm 110 after the mid-1800s. Something happened in that. We can do that in another video. Here's an example of Chuck Smith. Some people may know him. Um, Kelsey Grammer just did a movie uh, as Chuck Smith. Uh, not against these people. These are my brothers in Christ. They've led a lot of people to the Lord. This has nothing to do with that. I'm just doing a Bible study. He's the founder of Calvary Chapel. I, I believe he is, or at least he made them very established. Started with Calvary Chapel. We'll start with a Bible study in Chuck Smith's home. Here's what he says. Now, I want you to notice everything up until this point is ascension of Christ, Acts 1, and then a progressive victory. Notice how these folks acknowledge the ascension of Christ, but then they put the victory at the second coming. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory and is coming to judge the earth. They just changed the timing of it right there. It's coming to judge the earth. And now, so they put that big line in the middle of the verse. Yes, he's ascended, but something else is going to happen after. We're going to get really, really bad, and then he's going to judge. But that's not in the verse. That's not in the passage. He said he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father of glory, and God is coming to judge the earth. What's he going to do at the judgment? Put down all the enemies of Jesus Christ to bring all things in subjection unto him. That's not what the verse says. The verse says he's going to sit at the right hand of the Father until something, until all have made his enemies have become his footstool. He says, no, it's not going to work. He's going to have to come in judgment. Notice he leaves the throne. He's going to get up from the throne, leave the throne positionally, go and beat up on people, and then he's going to make them be in subjection to him. Do you see the subtle? You guys got to see the subtle change here. It says, and by the time the great tribulation is over, where's the great tribulation in Psalm 110? Absent, not there. This is called systematic theology. They have a template, and they got to cram all this scripture in there. He says, by the time the tribulation is over, the nations will have been subdued and will be brought into subjection of Jesus Christ, who shall come to reign. The Father said, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make 
my enemies, thy, thy enemies, thy footstool. Notice this, this middle part with the tribulation and the judgment, that's not in Psalm 110. Why are they adding that? They have to, to make their theological view fit. I, I'm not saying he's dishonest. It's just how they're interpreting it. Here's another example. This is John MacArthur from a sermon he did on August 19th, 2007 on Psalm 110. He says, now let me tell you the foundation of our Lord's argument. Everybody, that's everybody, knew Psalm 110 was messianic. Everybody. The standard universal Jewish interpretation of Psalm 110 is it's speaking of the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah is the one who will sit at the right hand of the Father uh, uh, of God, the position of power and authority, and make all Israel's and thus God's enemies a footstool for his feet. He is the conquering hero. He is the conquer. Uh, he uh, he is the conquering hero. Very reminiscent of Psalm two. I agree. That is how the Jews interpreted Psalm one ten, and it was a universal universal interpretation. It's messianic, and when the Messiah comes, uh oh, what just happened, John MacArthur? Doing okay up here, and then he says, and when Messiah comes, John MacArthur, he already came. Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus' birth, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection and ascension. And you just made it his second coming. Why? That's not in the passage. And when he comes, he will, notice he has his future, not past. In other words, he's saying he has not done this yet. He will subdue all gods, that's Israel's enemy, enemies, and put them under his feet. And by the way, just as a further explanation of that, being placed under the feet of the ruler was not where you wanted to be because it was really a symbol of execution. So when we were talking about the Lord subduing his enemies and making them his footstool, remember, I used Bible to show that that's a reference to uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He's saying, no, it's you're, he's going to kill you. So I just took this picture today uh, before we did this. This is actually a picture of my... John MacArthur study Bible from his passage in Psalm 110. I don't need to read the whole thing, but just look at this part here. My hand, God, the father invited God, the son in his ascension to sit at the place of honor in his heavenly throne room. I agree. We're on the same play, page. So he agrees. Psalm 110 is in the past and Jesus is seated at, the, seated at the right hand. We agree. He gives scripture for that. We're on the same page. Jesus is at the right hand of the father. Then look what he does. Your enemies will be your footstool. Remember the hard line these guys put through the passage I was telling you about? There's the hard line. Footstool was an ancient Near Eastern picture of absolute victory, portraying the idea that one's enemy was now underfoot. This anticipates Christ's second advent as a conquering king. Translation, he's not a conquering king now. And he's saying Psalm 110 has nothing to do with his first coming and his ministry and his finished work on the cross. Nothing to do with it. He has to come again as a conquering king. In other words, he didn't come as a conquering king. So that's just a small sampling to show that what I'm saying with Psalm 110 is actually the vast majority of church history from 1850 previous. Matthew Henry, Isaac Newton was a commentator on Daniel Revelation. Uh, all these guys, big name guys, Charles Spurgeon was 18, I think he did that in 1867. He was battling dispensationalism. You should read some of the stuff he wrote about it. But these guys previous to that, there was no thought in their mind. They knew Psalm 110 was about a conquering hero, and progressively he would conquer his enemies with the gospel. So that's the common interpretation. I'm, in, I'm out in left field today by popular teaching, but I'm safely and secure with this teaching uh, placed in history past with the vast majority of everybody who lived before 1850 that were 
common commentators on Psalm 110. Well, Ken, thanks again for your time, and uh, I look forward to the next one. All right, I look forward to it.